0: because I believe that no child on this continent should have to learn on an empty stomach.
1: That's Wawira Najiru, a young woman with big ambitions, accepting the 2018 Global Citizen Cisco Youth Leadership Award.
0: I didn't start this for, to win awards or to do anything. I just started it because I wanted kids to eat. And she's grown
1: her organization exponentially in just a few years, feeding 10,000 kids a day. But Wawira has set an even bigger goal.
0: The goal is to get to a million in five years.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Our Inclusive Future podcast. I'm Scott Harrison, the founder and CEO of Charity Water. And I've teamed up with Cisco to highlight organizations that are driving positive change to make the world a better place today. Today, we're bringing you the story of Wawira Najiru, an amazing entrepreneur who started Food for Education. She's joining me today from Kenya, and I'm so excited for you to get to know her and her work. Wawira, welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
1: Well, I'm excited for this conversation. First, I just want to congratulate you on winning Cisco's Youth Leadership Award. We'll talk about that a little later, but I thought uh, we could just start with a little bit of your backstory. Um, I'm I'm interested in hearing about your path to finding this passion for education. What uh, what was it like to be when we were growing up?
0: So, first of all, this is my first ever podcast. I've just realized that. So.
1: Well, you sound great. If, if, if all of your podcasts, if you sound this good, you're, you're, you're doing great. You've set the bar high.
0: I never grew up thinking I'd be on a podcast. That's one. Uh, because um, I grew up in a small town in Kenya, just outside Nairobi, um, you know, typical, I'd say we were a more lower class, lower middle class family. Um, my parents had grown up in a lot, like my mom grew up in a slum. My dad grew up in rural Kenya. You know, the first time my dad wore a pair of shoes, I think he was 14 or 16. So they grew up really, really poor for both of them. And so we were the generation of, you know, they were just coming out. They'd gone to high school been the first in their families to go to high school and then finished, uh, gone to college. So they were giving us the opportunities they'd missed out. So we had a very big sense of, you know, being the first to, for example, you know, wear shoes when you're born kind of thing when you're young. Uh, We were the first, you know, we had a house that we lived in that we didn't have running water till I think I was eight or nine. Uh, We didn't have electricity, but it was still that sense of better than how my parents had grown up so they really instilled that sense of you're better off than how we used to be because they tell stories if you're kenyan or african every kind of middle class african knows the story of being told you know we used to be so poor blah 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 but i was still number one in school so you should study hard because i'm a genius so i grew up with that sense of aspiration how
1: big was your family
0: I have two sisters. So we were five in total, two sisters and my parents.
1: And were your parents, you know, talking about education? Was this a a really important thing for them, for, for all three of you girls?
0: Yes, very, like the most important thing was education for us. We grew up with that appreciation because going to school was what essentially helped my parents out of the situations they grew up in. So they, to them, education is the most powerful thing in the world because it was able to give My parents, my my dad got his first pair of shoes when he was going to high school. So for him, he knew going to high school got me a pair of shoes. So kind of knowing that education was so powerful and transformative, they wanted to instill that in us and give us those opportunities. So we went to schools they could barely afford in terms of, you know, sometimes we'd get kicked, not kicked out, but almost kicked out because of lack of school fees. And my dad would have to talk to the principal. So they really were stretching the bar For themselves and for us to make sure that we got quality education. We had a house that had, you know, water and electricity uh, until some point of my childhood. And the kids around us, because that's the only area my parents could afford to live in, a lot of them lived in in slum-like conditions. So those were my playmates. Those are the people who were my friends, my childhood friends growing up when I was at home. So it was very stark in terms of the difference between the life I had and the life they had. And very present to me constantly. It was something that I knew, from the beginning i can't remember when i found out but i always knew i was lucky and other people were not and they were right there in front of me
1: so take me me to the next next step
0: yeah so next step i mean i go to schools that my parents can barely afford go to high school education is a big driving factor uh in my life uh and then i go to australia for my undergraduate which is also a success for my family because you know they've really sacrificed a lot to give me an education and now i get to go to a uh, university in australia to do my undergrad and i was doing it my undergrad in nutrition and food sciences and learning about the impact of poor nutrition particularly on, on children and i'd always when i was you know i had gone through primary and secondary school in kenya i had always been doing community service around the areas that i grew up in you know when i was a kid i was giving out food in our fridge and things like that. And so when I was in university, I started creating more structure around what I was doing. So started a feeding program for kids, uh, 25 children, giving them lunch every day. So that's how the journey kind of took me to what I do right now, and also has formed the sense of the world that I have right now.
1: What was your experience like in Australia? I mean, that is a pretty big change, right? From rural Kenya to university in, in Australia
0: yeah it was a small town outside Nairobi and then we moved into Nairobi so I'd kind of had the big um city experience a little bit before I moved uh to Australia but then when I moved to Australia actually I moved into a small town it's called Adelaide which is more rural than um Nairobi is yeah so it was very different um Australia is you know it's a Big country geographically, but very few people in terms of their 22 million people. And majority, it's a very white country. So it was very interesting for me being there. You know, first experiences I went there when I was 19. So, first experience with racism, first experience with paying rent by myself. I was paying my school fees through university. So, I was working four jobs paying school fees to university just $22,000 a year. I'll never forget because that was like my guiding point. Like I have to pay rent, right? pay all my bills, and then pay $22,000. So it was hard. It was really hard, but it I wouldn't be the person I am right now if I hadn't done that. So looking back, it was very useful. But then it was very, very hard for a 19-year-old to, to have all that responsibility. And you have to maintain certain hours going to school. Because then your visa get re- gets revoked if you don't go to school for certain hours, yet you have to work, you know, full time jobs and things like that. Yeah. But You always
1: had this lens on coming back to Kenya and helping, right?
0: Yes, always. So I knew I was just going for four years and it was very clear from the first day I landed, I, was, I said, I'm just here for my undergraduate and then I'm leaving. I felt and I still feel a lot of responsibility for Kenya because it's my country and Africa, my continent. So that sense of I have to do something, I have to do something.
1: Okay, so you come back to Kenya. You've got a degree now. What is the exact problem you're going to solve?
0: So I came back to Kenya when I'd already started um, Food for Education a little bit. So it was just a passion project then. I'd raised some money in, I went in 2010 and in 2011, I called all the few friends I'd made and made them a Kenyan dinner. Um, And uh, it was really like not good Kenyan food (laughs) because I wasn't a good cook and I burnt the rice and I cooked some okay-ish chapati, which is like naan bread. And it was an okay stew. And they each gave $20. And we raised $1,250, which was really cool because I just got there.
1: You know, when well, we were at day one of Charity Water was a party and I charged $20. Yeah,
0: I saw that.
1: <laughs> so big things can come from a very small seed.
0: Yeah, exactly. $20 can go a very, very long way. I started that when I was in university. And what I used to do was I'd just do small fundraisers like that and send money back home. So we started with twenty-five children we increased that during my time in Australia to around 50 and I'd send the money back home and they'd buy the food you know they we had a small makeshift kitchen and the kids would just continuously eat so I come back at the beginning of 2014 I start you know trying to figure out what am I going to do you know how am I going to grow this organization I started master's degree. here in Kenya. And then I decided, oh, no, I don't want to do that. So at the end of 2015, early 2016, I decided this is what I want to do full time. And from then on, we've grown, you know, from 50 kids a day to now 10,000 kids a day. So that journey has- Wait,
1: wait, there's, whoa, slow down.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a big
1: jump. So, okay. Uh, growing the organization, just, just tell me a little more about what that was like and growing and scaling it.
0: From 2016, coming back and having, you know, 50 kids that we were feeding every day, one of the things that I had this realization coming back was that this is such a big problem. And this is something that, you know, I thought this could be a small thing in my community, but it needs to be nationwide. It needs to be Africa-wide. Because everywhere I'd go and I'd speak about what we do, or I'd like meet someone and they'd say, you should come here, you should come to our school, you should come to our school. And these were all public schools. So we started thinking about how will it look like to feed uh, as many kids as there are in Kenya. When I started, my goal was to feed 100 kids a day. And so I started saying, okay, can we feed 1,000? Can Is that actually possible? in my mind that was the craziest thing so i i started googling school feeding programs around the world trying to learn what happens in other countries in school feeding and i found this organization in india called akshaya patra that feeds 1.8 million kids a day and i was mind blown by the operations and the precision of how they uh, cook the food how they distribute it how they've turned something that's I think a lot of places here and a lot of places around the world put side, school feeding as a side thing in school programs. But in India, with this organization, they really created this a sort of excellence around school feeding. And for me, that was very exciting because I knew that children do deserve excellent meals. They deserve hot meals. They deserve nutritious meals. They deserve delicious meals. And they were talking about, you know, making delicious meals, giving kids dessert in school meals. And I was just excited about that because I've always believed that food should be enjoyed. My nutrition learning was around, you know, making food exciting so that people can eat healthy food. So um, I found this organization, watched a ton of their YouTube videos. They work out of central kitchens in India, feeding up to hundred thousand kids a day from one kitchen and I thought, why don't we build a central kitchen here? So I, I went back to my friends and family and I raised money. Uh, we did a big crowdfunding campaign here as well. And we set up a kitchen that started feeding 300 kids a day. So we moved from 50 to 300.
1: Amazing. But this moment really showed you what was possible. What an organization at scale, the impact that it could have. And, and I'm sure that could that kind have of sat with you for a while. Let, let me just kind of fast forward. Just a couple years later, th- this big moment happened for you in 2018. Uh, it was the Global Citizen Festival. Uh, you won. You were one of, of two uh, female social entrepreneurs to win the Cisco Youth Leadership Award.
0: Tonight is our honor to present to you the winner of the 2018 Youth Leadership Prize. She's an exceptional woman
1: whose food and education organization. Can already lay claim to bettering
0: the lives of thousands of young students in her native Kenya. Global citizens, please join me in welcoming and congratulating Wawira well, uh, Jiru.
1: And you accepted it by making a speech in front of sixty thousand people. So I, I want to just, I wanted to say here, you know, oh, this is your first podcast, okay? A lot of people have done podcasts not many people have spoken in front of 60,000 people. What was that experience like?
0: It was insane because, first of all, I was standing next to Chuck Robbins, the CEO of Cisco, and Asha, who I had loved, you know, grown up to, like, his, you know, uh, songs. So I was just in in a daze in terms of thinking about, you know, the moment of having 60,000 in front of you standing next to Usher and Chuck Robbins. And also the moment that this meant for the kids that we work with and also for African women and for people who, you know, especially a young person winning a prize and especially at a young woman, what that meant. I felt very nervous going on stage and it was actually Chuck Robbins who said, you know, you'll be fine. He was very nice to me. And so was Usher. and giving my speech, I wrote my speech to, Um, kind of encourage young people, especially young African youth, that the future belongs to us, and so does the present. It's not about waiting for them. We are the ones that we've been waiting for, and here we are. And I believe that change begins with us. I created, yes, I created Food for Education because I believe that no child on this continent should have to learn on an empty stomach. I believe that our generation can be the one to lead this continent to prosperity. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Thank you. So it was a moment of like all that, trying to put intention to it, but also realizing that, wow, I've never done this before. And I don't know if I'll get to do this again. And also Beyonce was going to come up on stage, on the same stage at some point. So I was just like, oh my God.
1: Yeah, you were the, you were the opening act for Beyonce.
0: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I probably stepped on somewhere she did,
1: so. Well, let's maybe use that as a, as a moment just to talk a little bit about the role of technology. Um, I've actually heard you sort of critical of some nonprofits who are just talking about technology, it seems, for the sake of talking about technology, even if it's not relevant uh, to them specifically carrying out their mission. Um. How do you think about technology? How is it maybe particularly relevant for you and, and how some of those, have you used it and maybe talk about some of the partnerships that have allowed you to integrate or, or even to scale?
0: I think that technology is a really powerful accelerator for change and could be something that, you know, For us specifically, it's been such an accelerating tool for us. But in terms of, you know, to echo what you said about nonprofits and a lot of organizations putting in technology as a tagline versus actually using it, I think that the right technology and the right use for it can be transformative. But when it's not, I've seen technology not be useful to a lot of people, especially on the ground. And so thinking about how technology is used in design, Uh, The designing of technology in partnership with the people who are being served is something that we really take to account. So when we were developing the technology that we use uh, right now, Tap to Eat, that we developed, uh, thanks actually to the prize, the Cisco prize that we won, Uh, We thought a lot about, you know, the process of kids coming to school, their parents contributing for the meals, they contribute 15 cents, and that easing that user experience for the child to get their lunch fast and not even have to think about the 15 cents that the parent has to contribute. Because what used to happen before is that they'd bring the little coins to school and contribute that physically. So we linked uh, aspects that are common here. For example, mobile money that is very big in Kenya, that is easy for parents to use. They don't need a smartphone, which many of them don't. And they all, most people in Kenya know how to use mobile money because it's very common. And then we put an NFC wrist, a wristband that looks like a watch that kids can wear that's linked to their parents' account. So once the parent tops up, it goes directly to the NFC wristband that the kids have. And when they come to lunch, they just tap and get lunch in under five seconds. So thinking about NFC was something that, you know, I'd seen a lot of use from Metro cards as, the, the idea actually came from Metro cards that I um, use in Australia, you know, use used in Silicon Valley is used in different parts of the world and how that that it really eases the transit mechanism, especially in, in developed countries. So we thought, why don't we bring that here? And in a very cheap way, because it's a very cheap technology, and put it in a wristband that kids really, really get excited about because they love watches. They all want to own a watch. And it's very aspirational to own a watch. So putting it on a wristband was something that also really appeals to them.
1: Today, as we record this podcast, how many kids would be, uh, would have one of these wristbands on?
0: 10,000 kids would have this wristbands on.
1: 10,000 kids. Amazing. And, and, and that's never, that, that's only the starting place for you, right?
0: That's just the beginning. The goal is to get to a million in five years.
1: To a million kids in the next five years. Amazing. Just saying on this this theme of technology, you, you spent a little time in Silicon Valley. Uh, maybe just talk about that briefly. And, and what did you learn there? Is, is that where you, you came up with these ideas? Anything you can tell me about that time?
0: I think I've I've been to Silicon Valley a couple of times. My first time there was 2017. And what really amazes me is the idea that uh, is just how fast an idea can become reality versus in in many parts of the world, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy, there's a lot of um, red tape towards an idea becoming reality, and so it really has inspired me, especially coming up with Tap to Eat. I mean, we came up with Tap to Eat and developed and deployed it in a period of about six months, from you know the initial idea. To actually 10,000 kids having it is around six months. So the testing, the rapid testing, the rapid prototyping, and changing the way that we, you know, the user experience, putting that as central. And I think that's something that I really admire about Silicon Valley is that in terms of how fast an idea can move to reality, and how that is not common around the world. So it's something that's really inspired me. And also the use of technology feels limitless. I feel every time that I'm in Silicon Valley that you can really have a dream, however crazy it is, and someone would probably know how to make it reality.
1: Let's talk a little bit about COVID, uh, COVID COVID-19. So uh, as I understand in Kenya, there's been a pretty severe lockdown, which has also obviously affected schools. And children, how have you navigated the organization through this? Um, have you pivoted? Like, Talk to me about the last six months.
0: Yeah, so the last six months have been very challenging for us and especially for children. So COVID-19, we've had very severe lockdowns. As you said, school hasn't been in session since March 15th. And we, um, you know, school has essentially been canceled for the year. <laughs> and so kids have to go back to the same grade they're in. Uh, the war in when COVID 19 hit. And so for us, we really had to reimagine distribution and reimagine how kids can continue getting the meals that we provide them so one of the things that we did was thinking about first of all safe distribution in the light of social distancing requirements and then what actually can make a difference so we've been distributing food packages to families to kids and their families so we had to enroll their families and as well to our program and we've been distributing food packages and continue to feed kids until when schools will reopen so keeping the mission in mind that children don't stop, uh, they can stop going to school, but they don't stop eating and they don't stop growing. So how can we keep feeding them and ensuring that, that they're getting the right nutrition so that when schools return, they're able to go back to schools well-nourished. So that's what we've been working on since COVID-19.
1: And where we're at, at this moment in time, you know, how do you think of scaling to a million? What are gonna be the challenges as you look out to the next five years? Do you think you might even be able to do it sooner? How, how ambitious is this?
0: I think it's very ambitious. I think it can be done sooner. Uh, we're pacing ourselves to do at a million uh to get to a million in 2025. It's very possible. I mean, Kenya has 11 million children in public primary schools
1: of really need
0: meals. I'd say around 70% of the 11 million because a lot of kids in public schools are from low-income families. So, 70 to 80% will need meals. So we're, even at a million meals, we're just you know, not feeling the entire need that is there and we'll need to grow further. But the first goal is to get to a million kids. It's very feasible in terms of, I mentioned the organization in India that feeds 1.8 million meals and we're continuing with that central kitchen model, distributing meals to kids. And we've already developed the technology, we're developing the distribution chains to make sure that we're able to reach our kids in areas, in their schools, and are able to distribute up to a million meals a day by 2025. So it's very feasible. There's no shortage of children, and all of them need meals. You know, we're
1: talking about these big numbers. Can you take me down just into, into one story, one family, one student, and, and how, how this really impacts their lives? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're surrounded by these stories every day as, as we are, but maybe just share, share one with us.
0: Yeah, sure. Um one of the story that's very striking to me is actually uh one young man that I was with actually today who now works with us uh in waiting to get into university when schools reopen. And um He's doing a part-time job with us as he waits to get into university. And he started off when, you know, I'd raised the $1,250 and he was one of the first 25 children to get uh, lunches with us. And he finished primary school, got good grades, got a scholarship through high school. And he was able to stay in school, in primary school, because of the meals that we were providing him, and get the good grades enough to get to a good high school. And once that, when once he finished high school, now he's going into university. So for me, that's a daily reminder. I mean, I see him every day when I go into work, a daily reminder into the power of um, food for education and the power of meals, because they may look like, you know, a small thing that you give a child, but enabling a child to actually learn can be transformative. And I'm very proud of him because he's the first in his family even to finish high school and now we will have his degree and ready to take on the world.
1: Amazing. As as you think about reaching what the eight million or so students that you say uh, would would need uh, meals would need nutrition, uh, do you think there's a role in inspiring others to follow your lead or adopt your technology? Do you need to do this alone, or is or is there is are partnerships going to be key?
0: Partnerships are so key. So we've already started partnering with different organizations who want to learn from us, even not just in Kenya, around Africa. We've had inquiries from people from Nigeria, Niger, South Africa, uh, trying to learn from us, Mozambique, trying to learn what we do because Africa has actually 500 million children and 250 million of them are in spaces that can be reached through our model and through our technology. So by empowering other organizations and by teaching them what we're learning and learning from them as well, we're building a community of organizations that are pushing towards kids getting the right nutrition. Because, for example, in Kenya, we have one in four kids severely undernourished and stunted because of undernutrition. In Africa, the statistic is the same. So, thinking about this is not just a Kenya problem. As one organization, we can't reach every single child. So, we'll need a lot of partnerships to make that happen.
1: Your work is amazing, um, and I know that you must be inspiring other social Entrepreneurs that that see you that see your uh, uh, fame is not the right word, but maybe your recognition on this you know this this really not even an additional a global stage now, uh, your ability to scale. Um, What would your advice be uh, to another you know Kenyan student maybe who is looking at another problem? Uh, Maybe it's healthcare. Maybe it's water. Maybe it's um, maybe it's malaria or preventable disease what's your advice to them is it to go for it is to you know i I, i'm i'm always asked this question i'm always interested how how someone that's been through it for a bunch of years would look back and
0: what do you say to them i would say that it's worth it to live your life in service of other people is worth every hard thing every you know disappointment that comes along the way i think that um A lot of people probably think that it starts with the recognition, as you said, it starts with the opportunities or it starts with, you know, feeding 10,000 kids. But I started feeding, you know, the kids in my neighborhood with food for my mom's fridge and then it grew to now feeding 10,000 kids Um, and, you know, will grow to a million kids a day. So I would encourage anyone who'd like to do something to just start, that starting is you define what starting means to you. And as long as you start and keep pushing the envelope of this, I've done this today, tomorrow I can do one more thing, one more thing. Then it grows into a big, bigger thing. But if you don't start, then you'll never grow.
1: That's so similar to the advice I give. You know, the, the the origins of Charity Water 14 years ago was a party where I asked people to give $20 to build one well. And uh, or One Water Project, and that's now turned into 60,000 for 11 million people. And like you, you know, it's 11 million people we've helped with water out of 785 million. So we feel like we've only scratched the surface. I mean, it's 170th of the work that needs to be done globally. And uh, I'm the same. I just encourage other people out there, you know, start small, uh, move down that path. But using your time and your talent or your money in service of others, it's a blessing well that's great okay my final question uh i'm i know that there are people listening to you who have been inspired as as i have been how can they help how can they help you get uh from where you are right now to a million and then even beyond
0: go to www.food the number uh, our website there are very many ways that you can get involved that you can donate which is one of the key things that we need resources to be able to reach a million uh, kids a day. Uh, If you're in Kenya, you can also volunteer. If you go to www.food, the number four education, or even if you're overseas, you can come over once all this is done. But the main thing is, you know, this is not something that Warrior can do alone. This is something that I I, and our organization needs a lot of help to do. So anything that you can contribute will really go a long way to ensuring that no child in Kenya and Africa has to learn while hungry.
1: So I'm going to go on and make a, a donation uh, the minute we we hang up on this call. Um, Wawira, well, thank you so much for joining me uh, and, and a huge thanks to our listeners for tuning into these Uh, inspiring stories of innovation and impact. Uh, If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to Our Inclusive Future wherever you get your podcasts, and please do leave us a review. Uh, Until next time, this is Scott Harrison from Charity Water, uh, teaming up with Cisco to bring you these stories. Thank you so much for listening.